What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another great episode of Fraternity. I'm your little brother, Danny, and I'm here with my big brother, Sean. You want to say hi, Sean? How's everybody doing tonight? And we want to wish everyone a very happy Halloween and welcome to our Halloween special. And what better way to spend Halloween and our Halloween special than talking about a very special movie, Halloween. That's right. We're going to be talking about John Carpenter's classic, Halloween. We sure are, man. And I can't wait to get into that. You know, we've been celebrating horror all month long. We're a horror movie podcast, so we celebrate horror year-round. But what we've really been celebrating this month is the joy that it brings to the legion of horror fans out there who get to binge-watch their favorite classics, enjoy new films, or rip open and watch the latest awesome home video release that they just added to their collection. As fun as it is to watch horror movies all month long, I think the greatest thing is on Halloween night, when you get down to the nitty gritty, and if you're not out trick-or-treating with the kids or partying with other costumed adults, you're trying to squeeze in as many horror movies as possible before that clock strikes midnight and it's November. Definitely. There's just something special about watching horror movies all month, but nothing comes close to just that feeling you get on Halloween, sitting down and watching all the classics. Yeah, man, totally. Yeah, and what better way to cap off our first October horror movie watching celebration than with Halloween? We started our festivities off with George Romero's Day of the Dead. We then went and had a raucous good time discussing Halloween treats and tasty meats with Motel Hell. And last week, we went out at night with the one and only Maniac. And now, it's time to cap it all off. But before we get to that, Danny, you know, there is a new entry in the Halloween franchise that just recently slashed its way atop the box office. David Gordon Green's Halloween Kills is now in theaters. And while we're not going to do the full-blown fraternity treatment, I think it would be remiss of us not to discuss it tonight. I do believe some first impressions and opinions are in order. What do you think? Yeah, I mean... It's kind of our duty to talk about this film just because it lines up so perfectly with when we're talking about Halloween. So, yeah, we got to do it. Definitely. But before we even get to that, I thought it'd be fun if we discussed Halloween costumes. And maybe that's an annual tradition we can start now is we'll share a Halloween costume or two that we had when we were kids. So what do you think about that idea? Yeah, I'm down for it. It's fun. We talked about candy. Now let's talk about another aspect of Halloween, the costumes. Awesome, man. They are a big part of the celebration. So what you got? It's not a favorite of mine, <laughs> but it is uh, like probably the most memorable costume for me. Is uh, One year I was Captain Hook and I was Captain Hook and I had like the foam pirate hat and like our dad painted like an oil mustache on my face and I just <laughs> I remember his costume being like really thick and it had layers and you know we lived in the south and sometimes fall comes a little late or not at all and I just remember right. sweating and just feeling greasy with this like fake mustache on my face <laughs> and wearing this big foam hat and I just remember feeling like embarrassed because I kept seeing kids from school and they were like oh wow Danny you're Captain Hook 
And I just felt like so embarrassed in this costume for some reason. I don't know why, but yeah, I never uh, wore something as extravagant as that again. <laughs> That's funny. Did it have the uh, the like hook where you reach your hand in and hold the thing on your hand? Yeah, it had the little hook that you you hold it the whole time, and of course that's annoying, because <laughs> how do you, like, you gotta keep taking it off to, like, open your bag. <laughs> yeah, that was not, that's, like, the most memorable for me, but it's not my most fond costume. Yeah, well, pirates and hooks, you know, that's a, that's kind of a classic, and those hooks always end up in your toy box after that Halloween, so there's always just a random hook toy with all your toys. <laughs> right. What about you? I'm going way back, and this was my first Halloween costume ever, and I don't have any memory of it, but there is a picture of it, and it was a Ben Cooper Oscar the Grouch costume. (laughs) I know the pic you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I'm like, I feel like that makes me an OG, like, I'm repping the Oscar the Grouch, and I wish I picked that costume out, because... What kind of a badass little five-year-old picks out Oscar the Grouch, you know? I wish I could say I did, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Oscar's Oscar's definitely cool, for sure. Was uh, Captain Hook the only one you were going to share tonight, or did you have another one? God, all my Halloween costumes are, like, embarrassing, because I have another kind of embarrassing story where you know how you could wear your costume to school, right? And I was such like a goody two shoes, like always anxious, worried kid that I was going to get in trouble. Like I, I went to a Catholic school and I had to wear a uniform for school. So I wore my uniform, but I wore my costume on top of the uniform like a dumbass. <laughs> and so I'm like struggling and uncomfortable all day. And it was one of those like fake ninja outfits, you know, the ones that look like Scorpion or Sub-Zero, but they're not licensed. So they're just kind of right. fake. <laughs> the generic Mortal Kombat. <laughs> yeah, the generic Mortal Kombat ninja costumes. And I just remember going to the bathroom and like struggling to get the costume off and then struggling to get my pants off to take a piss because I had to piss so bad. And I was like, oh, no. why did I do this? Why did I wear my costume over? Like, I thought I was going to get in trouble. I don't know. Like that. Th- those are just the like my anxious thoughts as a kid. Like I was going to get in trouble for wearing my costume and not my uniform. Like. Uh, like what an idiot (laughs) you gotta commit danny you gotta commit well i wrote down one more and it's another one that i don't have many memories of because i was so young and i wrote this one down for you because you're a huge gamer you love nintendo and one of my earliest costumes was a ben cooper link from legend of zelda I didn't, I don't, I never knew this. Yeah, I almost, this, this costume was almost wiped from my memory for some reason, but it dawned on me because I had the Link plastic mask. And I remember I was like, oh shit, I had the Link costume because the costume was like this plastic pair of pants and shirt and the shirt was actually just like an image from the old NES game, like of Link fighting a demon. And I have no idea what happened to the body part of that costume, but I do remember my toy box having the Link mask, and so I just wanted to share that with you, because I figured you probably didn't even know about that. Yeah, I've never, I never knew that there were, like, licensed Nintendo costumes way back then. 
Like obviously now we have them, but yeah, that's crazy. That's so cool. You reminded me, one of my friends for Halloween, he dressed, he like made his own Link costume. Like he made the hat and like the shield and everything, like the boots. And I was trick-or-treating with him. My friend Eric was in the Link costume and we go up to this house and this old lady answers and she's like, oh, what a nice Peter Pan costume. (laughs) (laughs) And we just roasted him like the rest of the night, like nice Peter Pan costume, dude. And he was so mad. Oh, that sucks. Well, that's unfortunate for Peter Pan. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess next year everyone can hear a few more of our Halloween costumes because I'm sure we have plenty. Yeah, those are my most embarrassing costumes. Next year, I'll try to have something uh, that I liked. (laughs) Cool. So what do you say we talk a little bit about Halloween Kills now? Yeah, let's, let's let's stop putting off the inevitable and talk about Halloween Kills. I went and saw Halloween Kills in the movie theater, and I'm just gonna say from the outset that I thought it was pretty terrible. I'm going to say I agree with you that it was pretty terrible. I watched 2018 like two days ago for the first time in preparation because you said you want to talk about Halloween Kills. And I was like, all right, yeah, let's do it. Let's work it into the show. And I just finished Halloween Kills earlier today, actually. So it's fresh in my mind. And I'm a bit shocked and taken aback at what I saw. (laughs) I like, I don't know. I can't comprehend like what this movie was trying to be. Yeah, I was either laughing at it or some of the kills, or just shaking my head, thinking, are you serious? And I enjoyed Halloween 2018. Not to say that there weren't things I didn't like in it, but I definitely think that movie was light years better than this one. Yeah, like, 2018 has DNA of the original Halloween in it, but Kills has none of that. It just completely ignores tone, and just goes off the rails with the story, and it brings back all these characters for no reason, really. And it's just, it's just tonally all over the place. It's just my biggest issue. Like, it, it comes off as, like, a cheap sequel. And it comes off as a comedy at some times. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great that we're covering the original Halloween tonight. Because it does give us an opportunity to express and explain some of our displeasures <laughs> with this movie. I think one of the mistakes... I made was believing that the filmmakers were actually trying to make something better than the original franchise sequels. But honestly, the path this film takes just it just gets as corny and stupid as the Cult of Thorn nonsense in the Revenge and Curse of Michael Myers. That's part five and part six, respectively. I don't know if you've seen those. I'm guessing not. No, I haven't. I've only seen three Halloween movies. It's the original and then these two. (laughs) Yeah, it's clearly this franchise suffered from diminished returns. And that's why there's so many timelines because of reboots. But I feel like Halloween Kills just takes it back to where things went off the rails. Now, I want to be clear. I don't despise this movie. There are things I do like. Sometimes I just enjoy seeing Michael Myers pulling off gnarly vicious kills. And it delivers in that aspect, but it doesn't exactly fit the mold of a Halloween movie. Yeah, I feel like the filmmakers don't really understand what makes Michael Myers who he is and what makes a Halloween movie a Halloween movie. And 
it just sucks because I think 2018 had the makings to be, you know, this great reboot slash sequel franchise, but with kills, it just totally misses the mark and just like it almost shits on everything they set up in the previous movie. It's like, like, why do I care about any of this? <laughs> yeah, I also don't like a lot of the side plots that eat up the runtime in this movie. And it's a long movie. Things like the mob justice and some of the other swerves, they just don't do it for me. And you mentioned earlier how it really leaned into the comedy. And yeah, I don't like how much it leaned into the comedy at times either. I felt like this movie was bordering on Halloween sequel parody. Like, I was like, is David Gordon Green pulling off some Joe Dante Gremlins 2 bullshit here? But I think that'd be giving it too much credit. Yeah, it's they just definitely lost their way. And, you know, they just made a movie that wasn't that enjoyable, in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, I also don't think the slasher genre lends itself to a planned trilogy. I just don't think that works. Every entry in a slasher franchise has to stand on its own as well as fit inside the larger narrative. Sometimes sequels are more directly tied to the previous movie, but there is still a definitive arc in the previous film. If evil doesn't die, it at least appears vanquished. Evil dies tonight, Sean. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> evil dies tonight. That 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 didn't happen though. <laughs> Yeah, like, in the end, it turns into, like, it's like Michael Myers is having a kung fu battle with all these p- townspeople, and it's like, what is this? Is this a superhero movie, or is this, like, Halloween? Like, why? Like, it just has that, it's just directed and shot in that way, where it does not feel like a horror movie anymore. It feels like some franchise sequel bait thing, and I just, I hate that. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of Marvel movies, or stuff that just goes on and on and is interconnected like that it's just it was insulting to me (laughs) i honestly believe that the problem kind of lies with michael myers himself i don't want to give away all my thoughts on motivation and explanation in relationship to the original but i will say this with every additional film in this franchise the need to define this character becomes unavoidable and necessary apparently and i think it's a trap because it's always the downfall. We've seen this development in sequel after sequel, and I think I can explain it. Michael Myers is not the story. In fact, I don't think the Michael Myers that most people recognize, or that most of the films try to emulate, was even in the original. I think you find the birth of the Michael Myers most people know and love in Dick Warlock's fantastic performance in the original sequel, Halloween 2, which should have never been omitted, if you ask me. As much as the people involved in the new reboot harped on the fact that Michael is scarier without motivation, I think they could easily make a better story with the brother-sister angle left intact. But either way, Michael Myers is an iconic slasher villain, without a doubt. His image is engraved in our collective consciousness, whether you're a hardcore horror fan or not. But he isn't the story. And we'll see when we start talking about the original, the story isn't even the story, because there barely is a story. The real story of Halloween is John Carpenter creating the greatest structure for a slasher film of all time. That's what I think should be celebrated in the Halloween franchise. It single-handedly mastered the slasher movie formula and gave the rest of the world a blueprint for horror magic. And not only did the world see it, it was duplicated, 
imitated, and homaged to various degrees of success. The slasher boom of the early 80s just wouldn't exist if it were not for the original Halloween. And that is what we will be discussing and celebrating tonight. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head for sure. Like, I can't speak on the sequels. Like I said, I've only seen 2018 and Kills. But yeah, the more you expand on Michael Myers and what drives him or whatever, however you want to explain it, it just takes away from his character and it takes away from what made him and the original Halloween truly scary is that there is no answer and that he is the boogeyman. And that's what we're going to be discussing right now is the boogeyman in Halloween. I'm sure that years from now, when we are the most successful and popular horror movie podcast on the internet, we'll get around to giving Halloween Kills the real fraternity treatment. I can't say how our opinions may change when that day arrives, but until that day, I'm going to have to stick with a thumb down. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun to laugh at, but it just feels misguided. And it's an hour and 45 minutes, but it feels like two and a half to me. It feels way too long. And it just, I don't know what they're going to do for the third one. Halloween ends. I have no idea where the story can even go at this point and be like fulfilling as a story or an arc. I guess we'll find out. But Danny, I just have to confirm this, but this was your first time watching the original Halloween, correct? Yes, it was my first time. I had never seen Halloween, the original ever. I've never seen it until now. All these years, I've just, it's just passed me by. And I'm glad to say that I really enjoyed watching it, finally. You may be one of the last people on Earth able to deliver these fresh perspectives on Halloween. (laughs) Other than children being born right this second, I think you're right. Definitely. So, in each episode of Fraternity, we mention how this podcast is all about fond memories, and fresh perspectives. At the beginning of every episode, I've shared fond memories of discovering horror movies in my teens as I worked to build my mom-and-pop VHS horror collection. I've discussed scary encounters at young ages, the joys of renting horror movies when I was a kid. I've talked about sharing horror-watching experiences with high school friends. And even you, Danny shared the story of when we first watched Day of the Dead almost 10 years ago. None of these things, including this podcast, would be possible were it not for the movie we're talking about tonight. The details are a bit fuzzy. I'm not quite sure how these events were triggered, but they turned me into the lifelong horror fan that I am today and will forever be. I was seven years old, and Dad was dead set on letting me watch some horror movies. I don't know if the idea popped into his brain or if I talked him into it, but either way, he rented me two movies, and the one I watched after getting home from the video store was John Carpenter's Halloween. I've also talked before about how even as a kid, I was aware of movie magic and how everything was fake, and this viewing experience was no different, but it solidified my desire in seeing these types of films over and over again. Not only did I fall in love with the horror genre, but the slasher genre found a special place in my heart. I just absolutely loved the formula. Maybe it was seeing the shocking image of a kid my age murdering his sister, and then growing up to set the gold standard of masked killers. 
Or perhaps it was the incredible performance by Donald Pleasance as the mad and obsessively driven Dr. Loomis. I don't know. But despite knowing this was only a movie, I was glued to that screen. I was in that car with Annie. I was in that room with Linda. And I was on the edge of my seat as Lori did battle with the shape. And then there's that wonderful ending that just leaves you wanting more. All I can really tell you is that Halloween created my very first fond memories in the world of horror cinema. Michael Myers caused horror to consume my life much like in the way he consumed Dr. Loomis's. And that's all I can say. But fond memories are only half of our equation, and I'm so looking forward to hearing your fresh perspectives on this one, Danny. Yeah, it's really exciting because... I mean, you said that this was where it all started for you, and here you are sharing it with your little brother, and we're finally getting to enjoy it together and talk about it. So it's really exciting for both of us, I think. And without you ever having seen this movie, who knows if fraternity would exist right now. So it's got to be, you know, super important and a milestone for you and us. Definitely. It definitely is. and. As our audience should know, we don't review horror, we celebrate it. So let's get on with the celebration. Right. And if you like our celebration, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Fraternity. And if you like the movie, have anything to say about Halloween, or just want to wish us a happy Halloween and trick or treat, you can send us an email at fraternity at gmail.com. We open with the original, but now obligatory, pumpkin-heavy, orange-titled opening credit sequence. It's brilliantly executed. And I think it should go without saying, but this score in this movie is just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I mean, at this point, what else is there to say about the Halloween theme by John Carpenter? I mean, it's just such an earworm, and it just sticks in your head. Every time I hear it, you know, I can't help but tap along to it or tap with my feet. It's just... It's so great. It's eerie. Uh, it just works so well in setting the tone for the movie. And yeah, we do see this zoom in on this pumpkin and it's, you know, it looks like it's been carved a little sloppy. And it, the pumpkin itself is super iconic as well, not only the theme. So this movie it just has so much going for it and so much legend behind it. Yeah, I'm not sure if Halloween would be half as successful as it is were it not for this score. And I'll just say it's got a great ability to be haunting, and it's also got a great ability to build tension. It's pretty unrivaled at best, and at worst I'd say it's just matched. But yeah, brilliant stuff. So we opened up in Haddonfield, Illinois. It's Halloween night, 1963. And we are about to be treated to one of the most iconic and celebrated scenes in horror history. We stalk outside of a residence in a POV shot. We see a couple of teens making out on the couch. The boy asks if anyone else is there, and we learn that someone named Michael should be around. But they head upstairs because they're mostly alone. Once we move out of the bushes, we see an upstairs light switch off. And then we continue to stalk around the house before entering the back door. This unseen stalker arms themselves with a knife in the kitchen and then hides in the den as the boyfriend leaves the house. Slowly stalking upstairs, the intruder picks a clown mask up off the floor and puts it on. 
we are now masked, and we creep closer and closer towards this undressed female. Once she's alerted to the presence, she turns and chastises the intruder, shouting, Michael, before getting brutally stabbed to death. And then we get our first rare glimpse of blood on the young girl's naked body after she collapses to the floor. Our killer flees the scene. He heads back downstairs and out the front door, just as a car pulls up. Two adults exit the car, puzzled and questioningly also ask, Michael? They remove the killer's mask and we switch from POV and we see a seven-year-old boy in a clown costume holding a bloody knife. Now, I just gotta ask you, since this was your first time watching it, what are your thoughts here? How shocking is this reveal? Watching it, I kind of know that I'm looking through it through Michael's eyes, so I kind of know the twist, but the way you describe it and set the scene, I totally understand why it was such a big deal back then, because like you said, you saw a boy your age committing a murder on screen, and you know, where else could you get that? It's just iconic. It, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And despite having known all this through osmosis or whatever, how much, however much I knew about Halloween, it still is really effective. Like the point of view shots work really well and it perfectly sets up, you know, what kind of cold blooded killer we're going to be dealing with through this movie. And if he's this cold as a child, then who knows what he's going to be like as an adult. Right. Yeah, you know, even when I was a kid finally getting to watch this, I think there is a depreciation in shock value. I'm not saying it wasn't shocking, but it's hard to put myself in 1978 and fully appreciate just how shocking this probably was. Yeah, totally. Like, we can only imagine what it was like watching this for the first time and seeing the killer turn out to be a seven-year-old Michael Myers, but... We can, I think, theorize that, yeah, it was shocking and nothing like this had been done before to this degree and how popular Halloween ended up being. Next, we cut to Smith's Grove. It's now 1978 and it's the day before Halloween. We meet Dr. Loomis and a nurse and they're embarking on a patient transfer. And during this, we get some small talk between Loomis and the nurse, and he refers to the patient as it. And the nurse kind of says, like, shouldn't we call him him? And Loomis replies by saying, if you say so. So we're getting some pretty interesting character building of both Michael and Loomis here. Loomis has clearly got a jaded attitude when it comes to Michael. And, you know, you feel that he's tried everything with Michael and... Obviously, nothing has worked, and Michael must be this very scary patient if he's this dead set on keeping him locked up. And, you know, Loomis says it's out of his hands. You know, this is, he's done everything he can, but it seems like Michael is set to be released. Yeah, the nurse mentions how she hates when the patients speak gibberish, and Loomis tells her that Michael hasn't spoken a word in years. And then they discuss how much they're going to dope him up when they present him to the judge. But they get to the main gate of this uh, hospital and they notice multiple patients in hospital gowns wandering the grounds. And clearly something's wrong and Loomis exits the car to go investigate. And before she knows it, a patient has climbed on top of the car and attacks the nurse. Yeah, the patient grabs the nurse's face and... 
she kind of scurries to the other side of the car and then we see a hand on the other side of the car on the window and then the hand comes crashing down and cracks the window of the car and she the nurse jumps out scared and the patient jumps in the car and drives off and Loomis comes over to make sure she's all right but he proclaims that the evil is gone yeah the evil has escaped <laughs> and then we cut back to Haddonfield and it's Halloween day and young Laurie Strode is walking to school and she's going to drop a key off at the Myers place along the way for her realtor father. We meet a young boy named Tommy who catches up to her and we find out she's his babysitter and they're discussing the activities they're going to do tonight. And then Tommy learns that Lori is walking up to the Myers house and he warns her and we kind of learn here that the Myers house is now the local spook house. All the kids think it's haunted and they're all scared of it. Right. They say never to go up to the Myers house because it's haunted and something bad will happen if you go up there. But Lori brushes this off and she goes up and puts the key under the mat. And we get a nice little scare here where Michael is seen. You know, he watches her through the window door. Yeah, then even as they're walking away, Tommy and Lori part ways and we see the shape step out onto the sidewalk and just watch her leave. And then we get a brief scene of Dr. Loomis back at Smith's Grove and he's arguing with another official and he's arguing about the lack of precautions and Loomis is stressing that Michael's going to go back to Haddonfield and the official seems real skeptical. But Dr. Loomis is heading that way no matter what at this point. And we as the audience know Michael's already there. Yeah, Loomis tries his hardest to try to warn anyone, but no one seems to heed his warning. He's trying his damnedest, but no one is taking the threat of Michael seriously. I really love just these brief, the brief neighborhood scene with Laurie and Tommy. John Carpenter's score really sets the tone of the film and it's you, you feel this impending doom and evil coming. You know it's coming. And it's just so effective and that in broad daylight, you still get this sense of dread watching this film. It, it just works so well. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely cool. And you even have Loomis trying his best to warn everyone, like you said. And I guess if there is a story, because I kind of mentioned in Halloween Kills, you know, there really isn't that much of a story. but. The story really is Dr. Loomis trying to hunt this escaped lunatic, kind of, you know? Yeah, that's the basic premise, but it definitely takes a backseat when the teens and the kids are involved later on. And like we said, Michael doesn't necessarily have a motive or motivation. He's just kind of, he is evil. He is this doom that cannot be escaped. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because... Next, we join Lori in class, and her teacher is discussing fate, and Lori is kind of daydreaming, and she glances out the window and notices a masked figure standing there staring at her, and then the teacher calls on her, and she answers the question, and by the time she turns back to look out the window, the figure's gone. Now, we discussed in private about how this movie, of all horror movies, has probably been discussed to death. <laughs> right yeah definitely and what uh, we struggle to think like what more can we say that hasn't already been said yeah i thought we could talk a little bit about fate here and more specifically the difference between fate 
and chance because Halloween is a huge franchise. It's had multiple reboots, so we're dealing with multiple timelines. But one of the constants in Halloween is the character of Laurie Strode. And I think a lot of people, possibly because of this little scene and some sequel plot developments that come later, would argue that what happens between Michael and Laurie is fate. But we always base our discussions on what's on the screen. And I think what's on the screen here is chance. That's the great thing about Halloween is you can look at it from a couple different ways. And even the teacher is talking about how fate can be a natural occurrence. And it is chance that Laurie cross paths with Michael. And I think to put some sort of ulterior motive on Michael kind of causes him as a character to lose a bit of magic. I think the magic of Michael Myers is that he is unreadable. He is this force of nature that is immovable. And I think that's what you're getting at with the sequels is that they focus too much on this singular story when the whole point of Michael Myers is that he can be anywhere and it can be your fate to intertwine with him. But at the same time, that's, that's all up to chance, you know? So I think trying to focus too much on Laurie and all these characters is... I think it's missing the point of what makes Halloween work so well. For me, Halloween works so well is because you do have this mundane suburb of Haddonfield filled with families and it's relatable because you would never think something horrible could happen here and it does and it's because of Michael Myers, but it's it's all up to chance, you know? Was it fated to happen or was this all just some odd occurrence? It's fun stuff to think about for sure, but I think putting importance on any one aspect is kind of missing the point. Yeah, I think fate is just a little too far-fetched. I don't think it was fate that had Laurie dropping off the Myers key the morning after Michael Myers escaped Smith's Grove. It was chance. It's simply chance. And I think chance is far more scarier than fate. Yeah, I agree. That's what I'm getting at, too, is like this could happen to anybody, which is what the true horror of Halloween the film is, that this these horrific murders are happening in this kind of mundane town. And it's all chance that Michael Myers happened to live here before and escape here. And he's only going back to what he knows. You know, he's going back to his childhood home. I don't think it has anything specifically to do with Laurie as a character. Yeah, I will say Halloween Kills does address fate and chance and Laurie's importance a little bit, but not much. But I do think the idea between fate and chance, it's just an underappreciated and undervalued aspect of this franchise. And I think it could benefit from leaning on these aspects a little more. And I'll point out a few more aspects that I find underappreciated as we keep moving along. <laughs> so, yeah, I I think the the great thing about this fate versus chance thing is, you know, it's kind of ambiguous. And like I said, the more you expand on the story or try to give Michael Myers a reason for what he's doing, I think you kind of muddy those waters and make it not as enjoyable, at least for me. Well, you know what, Danny? He's going to get you. <laughs> the boogeyman's coming. <laughs> boogeyman, the boogeyman. Boogeyman. Yeah, we, get, <laughs> we get this scene of little Tommy carrying a giant pumpkin and being teased and accosted by three little jerkwad kids. But this does set up 
some good boy who cried wolf scenes later on yeah for sure i I definitely like all the stuff that happens with tommy here and yeah tommy is getting bullied at school by a couple of kids and they tease him that the boogeyman is out to get him and they keep teasing him and they ask him what halloween is about and and tommy's like it's about getting candy and then the kids answer back no it's about how it's about the boogeyman the boogeyman's out to get you and the kids run off and one of the kids runs into michael who's been standing outside the school this entire time and tommy starts walking home and we see this great sequence of michael following tommy down the road and then we see michael has a car and michael gets in the car and kind of stalks tommy as he's walking down the sidewalk and then finally michael drives off yeah this is another aspect of michael myers that i think gets lost in the sequels is he literally spends the first half of this film driving around in a stolen car and you're telling me that's a supernatural boogeyman i don't think so (laughs) yeah i really like all the humanizing they do to michael but it's never like explicitly stated it's always shown to you like yeah he's just driving around he he's not some supernatural being and as much as they try to portray him as like something that's unkillable they still show him as a normal human so it's just this thing of this dichotomy of you got fate versus chance and human or pure evil that keeps going back and forth and i really think makes the movie work really well is because you'd never get a true answer. It's always ambiguous. And I think, again, it shows that he's not driven by any reason, but he's stalking the two people he saw outside the house. You know, not only is he stalking Lori, but he's clearly stalking Tommy a bit here. Yeah, and I think just to put all the importance on Lori is totally ignoring that Michael is clearly just as interested in stalking Tommy here, too. Yeah. Next, we get a scene that has Loomis starting to pick up the trail, and he's on the phone with someone, probably from the Haddonfield Police Department, and he's warning them of the approaching danger. And then he notices an abandoned truck on a dirt access road by some train tracks, and there he finds Michael's abandoned gown, and he also spots a matchbook that belonged to the nurse from the night before, and this makes him realize he is indeed on the right path and that Michael surely is headed for Hadfield, and he starts to run back to his car before discovering the dead mechanic in the bushes. So I think, since this is our Halloween special, we should pour one out for all the poor dead mechanics, because Michael sure loves stealing their clothes. He loves those uh, one-piece jumpsuits, and I gotta say, (laughs) they are stylish. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) He could walk a runway in that. Yeah, I like when uh, Loomis is discovering the, the car and the body. We hear this train go by, and it's like, you know, Michael is this unstoppable force, just like a train. He's coming for Haddonfield, and there's no stopping. There's no brakes on this train. <laughs> well put, well put. Next up, we rejoin Lori. And she's leaving school with her friend, who's a preppy cheerleader named Linda. And then their friend Annie catches up to them, and they're making small talk. And they're walking down the street, and Michael's car starts to pass. And Annie taunts him here by yelling, Hey, jerk, speed kills. And Michael slams on the brakes, and the women are like, Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) What, can't take a joke? Yeah, eventually he drives off, and Lori makes the point to Annie 
that someday she may get them in some deep trouble. But the girls are already in deep trouble, <laughs> thanks to Lori and Chance. <laughs> that day may come sooner than you think. Yeah, we get a great scene here with Michael standing by some hedges just ahead as Lori and Annie are still walking. And Lori catches a glimpse of him, and then he just casually steps behind the bush and disappears. Yeah, and Lori tells Annie that she saw someone behind the bush, and Annie goes up to look, and she finds nobody there, but she gets a, she tricks Lori and tells her to come here, and that it's a boy that wants to talk to her. And then we get some dialogue that Lori doesn't really have any luck with any boys, and they think she's too smart, and Lori spends most of her time either studying or babysitting, and Lori's pretty off-put by all these spooky occurrences that have been going on and Annie leaves and Lori's walking backwards kind of looking over his shoulder and she bumps into Mr. Brackett who's Annie's father and we get a good spook there. Yeah. He uh he apologizes to her and then he delivers his immortal line. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. <laughs> <laughs> Lori is uh getting a lot of sightings of the shape and even when she goes home we get this other great shot where she goes upstairs to her bedroom and she looks down into the backyards and we see Michael standing among like some sheets hanging on a clothesline and then yet again as quickly as he appears he disappears yeah and then right after that Lori gets a call and she answers the phone but no one's talking on the other end so she hangs up and the phone rings again and she picks up again and it turns out it was Annie the first time and this time, and Annie was just uh, eating food and had her mouth full the first time. Because so. that's what you do when you call people. You take a big bite of food right before. You, take <laughs> you waste people's time. But yeah, Lori's feeling a bit scared at this point and a little freaked out, but I feel like she's trying to not let it get to her. She's trying not to be superstitious. She sees some kids uh, trick-or-treating and that makes her feel a little bit better. Yeah, there is a good line on the phone, too, where Lori says, I've already lost it, and Andy retorts, doubt that, kind of pushing her virginal virtue. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're not here long. It's almost time to go off babysitting. And Annie picks Lori up to drive her to the babysitting gig, and we learn she's a babysitter, too. And she'll actually be working right across the street. But the girls have just enough time to smoke some dope along the way, which totally kills the notion that if you do drugs, you die. Because I'm telling you right now, Lori inhaled. She definitely got <laughs> a little bit high. So we cut to the cemetery now, and it's a brief scene, but I think it's actually very important. And another overlooked aspect of this franchise, Dr. Loomis is at the cemetery and he's going to inspect the grave of Judith Myers. And when they arrive at her grave site, they find that the headstone has been stolen. It's very brief, but like I said, I think it's very important. Because I think we have to ask ourselves, why did Michael Myers kill his sister? And I think the real answer is that the filmmakers just wanted to deliver that shock. <laughs> but in the context of the film, I don't know. And I think it's safe to assume that no one knows why he killed his sister. But clearly it's important to him, right? It's not a kill that he just forgot about. Like he went out and got her gravestone and picked it up and stole it. And 
yeah, we're never given too much insight really to what's going on in Michael's head and we're only left to guess at what maybe is going on. But I think the point is that there is no answer. It could be this and it could be that. And for some reason it is important to Michael, but that reason is unknown to us and we may never know. And there probably isn't a concrete answer to begin with because we are dealing with someone who is, for lack of a better term, crazy. Yeah, I can't even venture to guess how many times I've seen this movie. Danny, you can attest to how many times I watch certain movies. <laughs> yeah, Sean likes to fall asleep to a movie he's really into, and I'm sure you've fallen asleep to Halloween plenty of times. Yeah, maybe a hundred times. <laughs> but I've never really taken an analytical deep dive like we're attempting to tonight, and just as I've been doing this, I don't understand how this scene can be so overlooked in the grand scheme of things. Because I think it does give us our best insight into any motivation of Michael Myers that we're ever likely to get. I don't know why he killed his sister. But I do believe his motivation in this movie is a search for a proxy or like a surrogate in her place. And by chance, the first female he came into contact with was Lori and she became his target. And she ends up drawing her friends in just by chance as well. So I just, again, I just don't understand why this bit is so overlooked. It's never brought up unless it's a remake, you know, like it's very important. That's all I'll say. Yeah, they skimp out on the little details, but the little details here are what really makes it work. You know, like I said, you never get a clear picture, but you just get a little bit of crumbles of what's really going on. But what makes Michael Myers so fun to watch is that you never get a clear picture. Our dope-smoking babysitters are still driving to their destination. They're jamming out to some blue oyster cult, and we see that Michael is indeed following them. And then they end up running into Annie's dad outside of a hardware store that's been broken into. It's an inconsequential bit, and it's way out of place if what's being implied here is what occurred. <laughs> but it does give us a great bit, because Loomis shows up, and he's standing on the sidewalk waiting to speak with Brackett. And he's looking every wrong way as Michael just drives past right behind him. Yeah, I love that bit when Michael drives right past Loomis. And Loomis is none the wiser that he just missed him. It goes from day to night real fast here. I don't know what the hell happened. But it is now Halloween night. It's the night he came home. And we see that Michael immediately takes an interest in Annie once the girls get to their destination. Yeah, Annie drops off Lori at Tommy's house, and then Annie pulls it into Lindsay's house, the little girl that she'll be babysitting, and we see Michael watch all of this go on behind a tree, and it seems like Michael has chosen Annie as his first victim tonight, which is interesting because, yeah, I don't think Michael is putting that much of an importance on Lori herself. He's just kind of acting... As a killer, he's just acting with no emotion. He's just drawn to what he feels he has to do. We end up cutting back to Sheriff Brackett and Dr. Loomis, and they're at the abandoned Myers residence, and they go inside to inspect the scene. And we get this great dialogue here when they find a dead dog, and Loomis is like, he got hungry. And Brackett thinks a man couldn't do that, and Loomis says, this isn't a man. 
And then we get a bit of backstory where Loomis explains what he went through in the institution with a young Michael. And this is where we see he has come to the conclusion that he's just evil personified. And he's going to wait at the house. He knows Michael's been there at least once. And we also established that he's armed himself with a gun now. Yeah, Loomis goes on to explain his past. He spent years trying to get through the Michael, but nothing ever worked. And then he spent the rest of his time with Michael trying to make sure that he stayed locked up. And yeah, Loomis comes off as very scared. Brackett even calls him out like, you just seem like you're scared. But, you know, Loomis definitely does have a reason to be this scared of Michael. And at the end of the day, Loomis is just trying to make sure another tragedy like Judith Myers doesn't happen. For sure. For sure. So this movie was originally titled The Babysitter Murders, and we're getting pretty close now because <laughs> Annie and Lori are handling their babysitting duties. Lindsay is the girl that Annie is babysitting, and she has this huge German shepherd, and it starts barking up a storm while Annie and Lori are on the phone. And Michael is actually prowling in the bushes. And this is where Tommy gets his first glimpse of the boogeyman. He looks outside the window. And I love how Tommy is aware of a strange presence, but can't get anyone to believe him due to his overactive imagination. Yeah, I love that these two houses are connected right now. Like, Tommy's watching everything that's going on at Annie's house, and we see Annie on the phone and Michael watching Annie. And I really noticed, too, like... You know, nobody is really taking Loomis seriously or believing him. And the same thing for Tommy. Tommy keeps trying to tell Lori that, you know, he saw the boogeyman and, you know, Lori just refuses to believe him. She doesn't want to give in to that fear. Yeah. And to be fair, he's not expressing himself in quite the right ways. But we see Michael here carelessly knock over a potted plant and he backs away from the house a bit and he gets attacked by the dog Lester. Lester is the dog's name. And then we see he immediately dispatches of the dog. And at the same time, Annie has just spilled butter all over her clothes and she's dressed down. And this basically ends up giving us an ample amount of false scares. We get quite a few moments here where we aren't sure if she's about to get killed or not. Thought it was well done and effective. You get awesome looks of Michael just outside of windows or just just lurking right in the shadows and you're like is he gonna get her or is he not you know yeah i really like when the film like kind of sets you up to think that michael could pop out at any moment you know that's the kind of the whole point is that we're getting trained to expect when to see michael and by the end of it you expect him to be around any corner just waiting for him to pop out and get you very establishing very early on that Michael is this force, you know, he is the boogeyman, and Michael hides and waits for his perfect moment to attack. He's credited as the shape in this movie, and they really deliver in that regard, I think. (laughs) There's just something really thrilling and yet chilling every time you spot that white mask somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, it's great, and it happens so often, and you were saying you were watching this on your phone, and you had missed a couple of the michael shots in the background and yeah they're totally blink and you miss them sometimes and i'm sure it was harder watching it on vhs or something and now we 
obviously have Blu-ray and HD and can see everything clearly, but I'm sure back then it was a little scarier. Sometimes I think I'm seeing things for the first time, you know, like, oh man, look at him right there or look at him over here. It's, I just love it. It's really well done. Yeah, I, fu- I find myself like straining, like, could he be here? Is he there? <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's what all those shots are there for, you know, to trick you and train your eye and make you see things that aren't really there and surprise you when they are there. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure there's areas where you're like oh man is he in that dark corner of the room or did i see him there i'm not sure yeah it's great so annie is gonna go pick up her boyfriend and she manages to pawn Lindsay off on Lori, and she heads to her car and there's this great bit here where the first time she walks to her car the door's locked so she goes to get the keys and when she comes back she just instinctually opens the door but it's unlocked and she doesn't notice this discrepancy but inside the car she does notice the windows are like fogged over and before she knows it michael sits up in the back seat and just grabs her by the throat and starts choking her and she's struggling a bit and then we get like the quickest throat slashing in film history maybe (laughs) (laughs) yeah again when she goes back into the house looking for the keys, it's another, like, you're just expecting Michael to pop out at any moment. And I'm sure it was terrifying when Annie finally gets in the car and he's just b- back in the back seat waiting for her the whole time. And she was walking to her inevitable death. Yeah, it's really great. At the Doyle residence, we see Lindsay and Tommy are watching scary movies. And Tommy decides to attempt to scare Lindsay. And he hides behind the curtain and he starts calling her name. He's like, Lindsay. (laughs) And as she's looking for him, he glances out the window and he sees Michael carrying Annie's dead body back inside the house. And this just causes him to have a freak out yet again. (laughs) Yeah, he's like bumbling, trying to explain to Lori what happened. He's like, oh, it's the the boogeyman. Yeah, Lori calms him down. She nips it in the bud. She's basically just assuming it's his overactive imagination and he's triggered by the scary movie and just Halloween in general. I like here how Tommy complains that no one believes him and we see that Lindsay is truly a ride or die for Tommy because she's like, I believe you, Tommy. <laughs> I really like the, the two kids. They, they, they're very believable and natural in this film. Yeah, what is Tommy wearing, though? Is he supposed to be Luke? Because I always thought he was Luke from Star Wars, but then there's like an American flag patch on it. I thought he was like an astronaut or something. Yeah, it's a a weird jumper costume. I I guess astronaut makes more sense, but it has that Empire Strikes Back look. But I guess that came after this, right? (laughs) I think it's an astronaut. I have no idea. But where's his helmet? Not good, Tommy. Not good. That explains what happened when you grew up. (laughs) (laughs) We do get a brief scene back at the Myers place where Loomis is hiding in the bushes and the kids from earlier show up and they're like daring each other to go into the Myers house. And a kid named Lonnie starts to walk up to the Myers house and Loomis frightens him off. He's like, hey, Lonnie. Get your ass away from there. Get your ass away from there. (laughs) (laughs) I like how amused 
with himself he is there, and then he gets the shit scared out of him by Bracket. Right, yeah, like, it's a good little bit of character building for Loomis, like, he isn't totally dreadful, like, he had a little fun there, he's like, hey, that was, that was funny scaring those little shits, and then, yeah, Bracket <laughs> comes up behind him and scares him. Yeah, like you were saying, this is where we learn that Bracket is running out of patience with Loomis, he's not being persuaded by Loomis's fancy talk, as he calls it, but... He does say, you know, he's going to see it through tonight, just in case. And if you're right, shame on you for letting him out. Yeah, that was kind of messed up to blame Loomis. He didn't do anything. <laughs> Loomis tried. He tried to keep Michael locked up. There's only so much he can do. Yeah, we cut back to the Wallace residence, and a van arrives. And inside, we find Linda and her boyfriend, Bob. And clearly, the plan for tonight was to go over there and have sex. Why, while Lindsay was distracted. But of course, they go in the house and it's empty. So they start making out on the couch and we see Michael watching them from the hall. So he's got his next two victims in sight. Oh, yeah. And Linda calls Lori and Lori's not sure. She hasn't heard from Annie and they confirm that Lindsay isn't going to be there. So Linda and Bob make their way up to the master bedroom and start getting it on. Yeah, they're having a funky time. Old Bob has that magic dick because he's sliding right in. <laughs> but he can't have ringing phones while he performs, though. That's a no-go. So he takes the phone off the hook. And during their after-sex smoke, Linda sends Bob downstairs for beer. And he utters those unfortunate words, I'll be right back. Clear sign that something bad is about to happen. Yeah, Bob goes down to the kitchen to get the beer, and it's super dark, and doors are creaking open, and he's getting a sense that someone's in there, and he goes to check inside a closet or something, and Michael bursts out and slams Bob up against this wall, and he ends up grabbing him by the throat and lifting him up in the air, and he stabs him in the stomach. And it's so deep that he stays suspended in the air. Like you see his toes just curling and he's there. He's like a foot up in the air. Yeah, that's got to be one strong knife or one strong wall to keep up this 150 pound dude. (laughs) Yeah, the logistics are interesting here because I'm not sure that was even a wall because it seemed like some flimsy. Yeah, I thought it was a pantry. Yeah, and then... Yeah, that knife, that is a huge freaking knife, though. (laughs) I guess. Maybe it's a really high-quality knife, not that cheap shit. (laughs) (laughs) And it's here also that we get the legendary head turn as Michael admires his work. Is he admiring his work, or is he just fascinated by death? Who's to say? Yeah, I guess, yeah, we can't really put a motivation behind the head turn, but it's an iconic look when he turns his head and looks at Bob. For sure. So Linda's upstairs filing her nails, and the door gets kicked open, and we see Michael is wearing a bedsheet like a ghost, and he's also got Bob's glasses on. And I just have to ask, what happened to this Michael Myers? Because I quite enjoy the playful hiding-in-plain-sight psychopath here. I do too, and I think this is another aspect that's lost in these sequels is this playfulness of Michael Myers right here. I mean, he's dressed as a ghost <laughs> with Bob's 
glasses on. He's he's dressed as Bob's ghost because he just <laughs> killed Bob. Right. And it's like he just appreciated his work staring at Bob and and now he's upstairs with Linda in a sh- in a white sheet, a classic costume. Yeah, it's just it's these playful little moments that I don't know if it necessarily adds to Michael Myers as a character, but it definitely humanizes him in some sort of way. And it makes me feel like I'm watching a human, not some sort of, like, superhero, you know, or supervillain, rather. I agree, and I struggle to think of many times where he's done anything like this. I, I think there's a scene in Halloween 5 where he hides in plain sight like this, but other than that, I can't really think of anything else, and I think it's a shame. And it also gives me a good opportunity to point something else out, which is... Michael Myers, again, is a stalking killer. He hides. The victims never see him coming until it's too late. He isn't this tank that just comes forward and there's nothing you can do about it, you know? Right, that's the interesting thing about Michael Myers is he hides, he hides in the shadows, and he waits for his perfect moment. He isn't the strongest looking man. He's clearly can get damaged, so he's got to wait for his moment to strike. It leaves it up to mystery, like, is he really invincible or not? You know, that's the great question to ask. And just having that question out there is really important. And I think once you answer it, like I said, you kind of lose a little bit of something of Michael and with the movie itself. Linda ends up flashing her breasts to Michael here. (laughs) And I don't know what he thought, but I definitely think she delivered the goods. (laughs) I don't think they were better than Judith's. Yeah, I'll give you that one for sure. (laughs) But Linda ends up getting frustrated by the silence and lack of beer. So she turns her back and starts calling Lori. And he immediately starts stalking towards her. And as Lori answers the phone, but before Linda can speak, he starts strangling her to death with the phone cord. And Lori can hear this on the other end, but it just sounds like moaning. Yeah, she thinks uh, Annie or, or Linda is getting a joke in on her and making Lori listen to the moans while they're having sex. But as it keeps going on, Lori starts to think this is, this is getting a bit weird and not funny. There's definitely something awry. So we get a topless strangulation. And as Linda's life is fading, she drops to the ground. And as she's dropping, she's pulling the bedsheet off of Michael. So we get a really good look at him here. And we get a really good look at the mask when he picks up the phone and can hear Lori on the other end. We hear the breathing, the great Michael Myers breathing, which we haven't brought up yet. But that's another great iconic thing about Halloween is the breathing in the mask. You have to have the breathing. And yeah, the mask, like I said, it's it set the gold standard for... Masked killers, in my opinion. Absolutely, yeah. We briefly cut back to Loomis here, and he ends up finding the stolen car. And he decides, instead of just waiting around at the Myers house, that he's going to start kind of walking around the neighborhood. And then we see that Lori has put the kids to sleep, and she decides to go investigate just what the hell's going on across the street. And she makes her way inside, and the house is completely dark. And she goes upstairs, and in the bedroom, she finds the body of Annie laid out in bed with her throat slit. And 
Judith Meyer's headstone is resting just above her, and it's like a shrine. And again, I think this proves my point that what Michael has been after is nothing more than a proxy or surrogate for Judith, and it's all been by chance. He started stalking Lori because she approached the house. She was probably the first woman he saw, and she would make a perfectly fine proxy for Judith. But then his fixation turned toward Annie, again by chance. And then Linda and Bob were just victims of circumstance for going to the wrong house to have sex that night. <laughs> and I just don't understand why all of this is so overlooked in all of the other movies. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, I can't speak on all the sequels, but I can definitely see... I can definitely imagine and kind of guess where they kind of lose what makes Halloween so good, this movie so good. So you're totally right about picking up on all the little details that kind of make up Halloween and Michael Myers. You, you have to have all the puzzle pieces there or else, you know, you don't have a complete picture and the story falls apart a little bit. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think you could take some of these aspects and craft a better narrative, but I'm not a director. I'm just a fraternity brother. So Lori ends up getting startled by all this and she's backing away and we get this great jump scare where Bob's body comes swinging out of the closet upside down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. I just wonder how his body is hanging up in there and how <laughs> Michael managed that one. Yeah, again, there are some interesting logistics involving Bob. Bob had a magical dick though, so... <laughs> Maybe he's swigging from that magic. He has different gravity. <laughs> <laughs> but then Lori backs away from Bob's swinging corpse, and she knocks another door open, and we see the body of Linda stuffed in there. And Jamie Lee Curtis really delivers the goods here in the Scream Queen department. I almost had to turn my volume down. I was like, jeez. Yeah, there's been all this buildup this whole time for Lori, and now... She sees the boogeyman is real, and it, she's shocked, and she backs away from Linda's corpse, and she backs up into this corner, and it's right next to this doorframe, and in the darkness of the doorframe, we see Michael's head appear, and then Michael takes his swing at Laurie, narrowly misses, and cuts her on the arm, and cuts her shirt, and it causes Laurie to stagger, and then she falls over the balcony, not down the stairs, but over the balcony of the stairs. Yeah, I wanted to take a moment here. All that is great. I love Michael's mask appearing. Probably not the smartest place to stand and freak out with like this dark <laughs> room right <laughs> next to you. But if you look at Michael in this scene, he's kind of hunched over. Like after she falls over the railing, he's got his knees bent. He's in this weird posture. And I've heard that there were about five different people who donned the mask in this movie. And I think it really shows here. Because even looking at how he hustles down the stairs is just not the Michael Myers we know. And the reason I point this out is because of what I said earlier, where I think the Michael Myers most people know and love really wasn't fully realized in this movie. There are bits of the realization here, but... He mostly stands around. I don't think it's until Halloween 2 that we get the fully realized Michael Myers that we see emulated so often in all these sequels and remakes and re-sequels. 
reboots, resequels, sequels, remakes. There's like five separate timelines for the Halloween franchise. <laughs> I'm sure you know that, but yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I kind of like the stalker Michael Myers stand around and stand in the shadows. Yeah, I don't have anything against him, and I guess we'll have to compare next year when you get to see Halloween 2. But yeah, we'll we'll see which one I like better at, at that point, but so far I'm a, I'm a fan of this one. <laughs> yeah, I don't have anything against this Michael Myers performance and I just think it's interesting because again, like most of the emulations I don't think come from this movie. I think he's starting to be realized, but he's not fully there yet. But he has done a good job of trapping Lori in the house. Like, she can't get out the front door, and she retreats to the kitchen, and he's got a rake blocking the door. And she shut the door to the kitchen, and he has to smash his way through. And as he's coming through, Lori smashes the window and finally gets out. She's running through the street, screaming. She's banging on neighbors' doors, and no one's helping her. That was me, by the way. I didn't help her. (laughs) would you help someone screaming at your door on halloween night in the middle of the night screaming bloody murder i don't think so yeah i might keep my door locked in that scenario too especially on halloween right yeah you never know what tricks are are going on so we end up getting this really tense bit where in all the commotion Lori's lost the keys to the doyle residence And the kids are asleep and she's trying to wake them up by throwing a potted plant up against the wall. And we can see Michael just closing in and sleepy Tommy just taking as much time as he can to open this freaking door. He's like, all right, I'll come down. And Laurie's screaming bloody murder. (laughs) (laughs) Right. He does get her inside before Michael can get her, though. And once inside, she's freaking out and tells him to go upstairs. And he's starting to breathe anxiously because we already know how he feels about all this and Lori checks the phone and I'm guessing that the line has been cut and then she notices a window in the living room is open and you can start to hear the breathing and she hides by the couch and she ends up arming herself with a giant knitting needle and Michael attacks from behind the couch and he misses her and she stabs him in the neck and Michael is down for the moment Yeah, I've seen people complain here that Lori throws the knife away. But in my opinion, she thinks Michael's dead here, right? Like, it makes sense to me that she would think it's over. I mean, she even goes upstairs in the next scene and talks to the kids and tells them that, you know, she killed the boogeyman. She did penetrate his neck with like two inches of a big ass knitting needle. But also, Lori's not a fighter. You know, she's... She's hysterical you know i think you don't always act rationally yeah she's clearly a bit she's dealing with a lot right now i mean give her some slack and again you know we talked about how michael is this stalking killer and as we see here once someone is aware of him and he's still attacking he's prone to getting his ass kicked by a young female babysitter no less (laughs) yeah michael is not a trained fighter he is a stalking killer which i mean just reminds me of halloween kills hate to bring it up now but there's a big fight scene at the end of that and by that point i just checked out of the movie it had no place being there (laughs) well if this franchise has proved anything it's that they can erase their own history so maybe it won't be there for long (laughs) (laughs) 
But yeah, you said, I like what you said there, that Michael is not a trained killer, because neither is Lori. Now, maybe she would deal a killing blow if she knew what she was doing, but she doesn't know what she's doing. She's just fighting back to the best of her ability. And we also see that Loomis is still looking about, and he doesn't yet know how close to the action he is, but he's getting kind of close. And I do want to talk a bit here about, we do see Michael take an inhuman amount of punishment, right? Yeah, of course. Not trying to say he doesn't take a lot. You know, there is definitely this aspect of how much can one human take and how human really is Michael and is he this supernatural force or whatever. Well, my personal headcanon is that Michael suffers from congenital insensitivity to pain, which is a real thing. Some people can't feel pain. And I can use that excuse to stretch the limits of my imagination, but there are limits. Nothing in this movie crosses the line, but I am looking at you Halloween kills. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, Like I said, that ending fight in Halloween kills goes a little too far for my suspension of disbelief my michael myers is a man that's how it's presented here despite all the mad ramblings of dr loomis and i prefer it and i like it that way and i think a man can be just as scary or even scarier than some undefeatable monster you know like i said michael myers could be in your house could be anywhere And that's what's scary. Lori ends up going upstairs to get the kids. And she's telling them, like you said, she tells them she killed him. And Tommy expresses that you can't kill the boogeyman. And he ends up being right because Michael is coming up the stairs right behind him. So Lori tells the kids to run into a closet and lock the door. And she ends up opening the balcony door to make it look like she might have went outside. But she retreats into another closet. And Michael ends up going after her, and he starts smashing his way into the closet. And there's this great bit where he accidentally turns the light on in all the commotion. Yeah, he's like fumbling with the light, and it's causing it to flicker on and off and sway back and forth. Yeah, really tense scene here. And Lori ends up straightening a clothes hanger, and she jabs it right into Michael's eye. And this causes him to drop the knife. And she picks it up and she thrusts it into him and he's down again. He's got, he's got to feel some sort of pain. I mean, he got hurt by this eye stabbing and he's down for a minute when he gets stabbed here. So it definitely puts him out of commission, right? <laughs> some bit of human left in Michael Myers for sure. Yeah, Lori ends up telling the kids to just run and go find someone, get some help. And now we get to the famous scene. Of Lori sitting in the doorway, exhausted, and we see Michael just sit up from a prone position and turn his head and look at her. And right as his head turns, we get the music kicking back in. Michael's alive and the music comes back to life. Iconic scene. Yeah, this is great. He grabs a hold of Lori and starts to choke her, and they're struggling. And then Lori grabs the mask of Michael and tears it off. And we see Michael's face for the first time in the film. Yeah, and underneath, we see what looks to be a pretty normal-looking dude. Albeit he does have a stabbed and swollen eye, but 
He looks like if he wasn't wearing a mask, you'd never know <laughs> this was a psycho walking down the street. Right, and that's what makes it special, is just, he is basically this normal guy underneath the mask, but it's almost like the mask is a part of him, and he's kind of befuddled when it gets torn off, and he almost looks like a bit helpless for a moment, but this distracts Michael just long enough for Loomis to come in, and Loomis comes up stairs. And he gets a good shot on Michael, and it staggers Michael back. And then Loomis takes five more shots into Michael, which causes him to stagger and fall off the balcony. Loomis looks over the balcony, and we see Michael laying there, presumably dead. And a shaken Lori looks to Dr. Loomis and asks, was that the boogeyman? And Loomis responds, as a matter of fact. It was. He then looks over the railing, and all he sees is a patch of grass where Michael was. And he looks on, bewildered, as Lori picks up on the fact that he must not be down there. And as she starts to cry, we cut to a bunch of shots of different areas of the houses, and it's accompanied by Michael's heavy breathing, emphasizing that the shape could indeed be lurking anywhere. And that's the end of our movie. I love this ending. I mean, it's iconic. It's great. I love that it signifies, yeah, that Michael could be anywhere in the shadows just waiting for that next kill. And that in the end, it might be true that you cannot kill the boogeyman. Yeah, it's a perfect ending. Even if this movie were to never spawn a sequel, I don't know what the plans were. I don't think the plans were to have a sequel. But it leaves you wanting more, and it leaves the door open for more, and it's just haunting. Yeah, it's just, it ends with a traumatized Laurie and a killer clearly still on the loose, and that's it. And it's scary, it's haunting, and you're left feeling like this could happen to me or you or anywhere. It's, it's very effective and great, and... I understand now why this is such a legendary movie and why it's so many people's favorites. I love it. I loved watching this film. I loved rewatching it and writing about it and talking about it with you. And I'm really excited to keep going on and watch the rest of the Halloween franchise films and maybe finding some other films in the Halloween franchise that I like. Sounds good, man. Awesome. I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad we could do this. And I'm glad we could put this Halloween special together. But before we go, I gotta ask, did you find a favorite kill? My favorite kill, I gotta go with Bob. Because not only is it great seeing his body hung up, pinned to that wall or pantry door or whatever it is. You know, we do get a bit of that playfulness that I really like with this Michael Myers and kind of admiring his work. That he just did. And like I said, that playfulness is, I think, something that gets a little bit lost in, at least from what I saw in Halloween 2018 and Halloween Kills. But I really appreciate it here. Like I said, it humanizes Michael in a way that makes him feel more realistic and not just some brute that can't be taken down. Yeah, we don't ever really get to care for Bob, but it's a great kill and it's very unfortunate because it's basically like someone wandering into a lion's den not realizing it (laughs) right good choice what about you sean what's your favorite kill i totally have to go with linda 
that would have been my second choice and it might have been my first choice for a moment but i had to go with bob but linda is definitely up there and again i i like the playfulness of this one too yeah i love the whole sequence of michael dressed as ghost bob <laughs> and there really aren't a whole lot of kills to choose from in this movie and in all honesty Halloween is pretty tame when you compare it to the slasher films that would shortly come after this. But Linda getting strangled to death with a phone cord while Lori listens, and not to mention Linda is still topless throughout the sequence, <laughs> it seems pretty gratuitous and violent and boundary pushing within this movie. It may seem tame now, but I'm sure it was pretty shocking back then, and probably to you as a child nonetheless definitely so how about a favorite scene you know i can't say anything other than the final sequence where laurie and michael are struggling and she pulls off his mask and we see michael's face for the first time and loomis comes up and gets those six shots on michael and he falls but then we see his body gone and then we get those shots all around the interiors and exteriors of the film signifying really that the boogeyman could be anywhere waiting for you and it's just so effective like you said it's the perfect way to end the movie like you can't write anything more perfect the final shot of the film is of the myers old house and that's the end that's the end of the movie it's cool that we get get sequels but as a standalone film i think halloween works really well i agree that's my favorite scene as well is just Loomis looking down and seeing that Michael's gone and you don't know where he is, but you know he's alive. And yeah, you get that collage of shots of just different areas of the house where Michael could be stalking and you can hear him breathing. But I really struggled because that is my favorite scene, but I have to back it up to the point where he does his iconic sitting up because. I think back to as a kid, like when you're a kid and you love horror movies, everyone emulated that scene, you know, like you could play in your room or with your friends and you'd like sit up like that, you know? Right. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure you've done that to me. <laughs> I'm sure I've stalked you through the house as Michael. <laughs> but yeah, from the sit up to the struggle to seeing his face to Loomis putting his six rounds into Michael. And Michael surviving. It just doesn't get much better. It stays with you. It makes you a fan of horror. <laughs> and it works for people that aren't fans of horror. Clearly by how popular Halloween is as a franchise. But I'm pretty sure like, like you said earlier. Everyone on the planet has seen Halloween. And appreciates it. Even if they don't like horror as a genre all that much. Well said. Well that's our thoughts. That's Halloween 1978, and that is our Halloween special. And we just want to take this moment again to thank everyone for listening and wish you all a happy and safe Halloween. Don't let the boogeyman get you. Thanks for listening, and happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween.